How's it going, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Buddy's House of Horror Podcast, and welcome to my finale, finally, of all of the films that I watched in 2022, reviewing every single horror film from that year that I had the pleasure or potentially displeasure of watching. And this was the first episode that I recorded of the 2023 Horror Marathon, dusting off the old windpipes as I do. So at points I do kind of run out of breath and I ramble on a little bit, but that's all just part of the fun. So I hope you guys enjoy the show. I hope you have watched some of the films that I watched during this year and you let me know your opinions about these films. Let me know in the comments on Twitter, stuff like that. Wherever you listen to the show, make sure that you are subscribing to the show, whether it be YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Help me spread the good word about Buddy's House of Horror. Share it with a friend. If you have someone that would enjoy the show, definitely point the show in their direction. And with that, I'm just going to get right to the episode. Again, this is me reviewing every horror film that I saw in 2022. Part 3, I believe, the final part, the finale, coming at you right now. So now let's get spooky. Alright, we are rolling sound here on the first official episode that I'm recording for the 2023 Buddy's House of Horror 31 Day Horror Marathon. As you guys know, I'm very sporadic with my sort of like release schedule, so this is the first one that I am recording. May or may not be the first one that is released in October, but if it is towards the beginning of the month, I'm assuming it will be towards the beginning of the month. Happy October, everyone. I hope you guys are enjoying everything going on so far as we get into the spooky season. Me, as you guys know, um, celebrates horror all year round. So at the time I'm recording this, it's not October yet, but it's getting pretty close and I'm really gearing up to the Halloween season. As all of you guys know, July 4th in America, Independence Day, is the last sort of big holiday up until Halloween. So as far as I'm concerned, July 5th, that is the first day of Halloween. That's not necessarily when I'm recording this, but up until July 5th, socially acceptable, start decorating for Halloween in my book. That's how I consider a good Halloween season starting July 5th. Of course, me, as I said, I celebrate it all year round. Um, but again, I hope you guys are having a good time. I'm having a great morning so far off of work. Uh, my wife is currently at the beach um, because Ohio weather is very sporadic. So, you know, it can get up to 70, 80 degrees in September. Uh, early October it can even be in the 80s or 90s still. I mean, Jesus, we didn't even snow at all this year, pretty much. Um, it was like 90 degrees in like March some days. Um, it's very sporadic weather around here, so you can go to the beach pretty much any time of year. Maybe not January, February, December, stuff like that, but hell, people can start going to the beach in like April, March, all the way up until like November, um, in Ohio, at least where we're at in Ohio. The weather is very sporadic, so you gotta take it like day by day. It's like, is it a hoodie day? Is it a shorts day? Is it a tank top day? And I learned very quickly this summer that I need more tank tops. So, Graveyard Goods, Studio House Designs, if you have a horror brand that's creating clothing, you gotta start throwing some tank tops into your repertoire. Um, cause I will buy them, because as I said, running very low in the tanks, especially during the hot portions of the year. 
Today I've got a beverage I've never drank on this show before. I've got Coca-Cola Zero Sugar in a bottle. Um, a lot of you guys know I'm a can man. I like to open the cans on the podcast, get that good sound. This bottle, well, I guess you get a little bit of a, you know, a good bottle opening sound, but it's not nothing like the good crisp sound of an opening can. I'll take a little swig for the working man. Coca-Cola Zero Sugar. We kind of wanted to just change things up. Me and my wife were at the grocery store the other day. We're like, we always get Dr. Pepper. We always get Dr. Pepper cream soda. We always get diet Dr. Pepper. We always get Dr. Pepper strawberries and cream. We changed it up. We got some Coke Zero Sugar. She insisted upon the Zero Sugar. I'm a sugar guy, but you know, I will appease my wife and give in with the zero sugar and yeah we're just gonna dive right into this because as you guys always know and I'm not gonna apologize because I don't owe you guys anything on my self-imposed deadlines I always say that I'm gonna do the wrapping up of my 2022 films that I watched all year as a show in like January or a New Year's show or sometime throughout the year in every single year 2020, 2021, 2022, every year I've been doing this, I procrastinate creating that final episode. There's something about encapsulating everything. It's just like George R.R. R. Martin, how he's never going to finish that last book of Game of Thrones. There's something when it's just over that it's very, very different for me, I guess. This is my Game of Thrones series, reviewing every horror film that I watched in a given year is my Game of Thrones. So we're ending it this year in October. I would apologize for doing it so late, but hey, I do what I want. It is my show. So we're going to dive right into some of the horror films that I saw in 2022, wrapping up everything that I saw up until the end of the year. We've got about five months to cover, which is basically half the year, but luckily in December and November, my horror watching um, sort of dwindled down a lot in those months just simply because, you know, heading home for the holidays, spending time with family, friends, stuff like that. A lot of less, lot less time to be watching horror films alone in your attic as opposed to some of the earlier months in the year. So while the first ones they covered the first six or so months of the year, this is going to cover the entire last half of the year, hopefully. I'm hoping to get this done within a reasonable time period. And we're starting off in August. So August of 2022, I saw a few films in that month that would be considered horror. Saw some films that weren't horror. Saw Dragon Ball Super Superhero that month. Um, I rewatched Digimon the movie that month, um, which does have some horror influences in it, I will say. At least when I was a kid, there were some very, there was a lot of scary imagery in Digimon the movie. And also, as I said, since, since this is the first one I'm recording for the marathon this year, I'm going to be stumbling over my words a lot. I'm going to be mispronouncing things. I'm going to be running out of breath because I'm not used to doing this all the time. So please bear with me through this. But we're going to have a lot of fun doing it because I love talking about every horror film that I see in a year. It's a lot of fun to just kind of go down memory lane, look at my letterbox, see what I rated some stuff, see what I wrote down when I was watching these films and things of that nature. So it's going to be a lot of fun. We're starting off August 3rd, 2022 with the 1982 classic 
pieces. Notably, one of Eli Roth's favorite films of all time. I think he's been on record saying it's his favorite horror movie or favorite slasher, something like that. But regardless, it is up there with his favorite things ever. And it's exactly what you think it is. A frustrated Boston detective searches for the maniac responsible for mutilating a number of university co-eds. Pieces. I had heard about this film for years. Like, literal years. I've heard about this film pretty much since I started getting into horror, like, at the level that I'm at now. Like, back in early college years, I would hear about Pieces all of the time. But it was a film that was very hard to find, like a physical release of on VHS, DVD, whatever. Um, thankfully, now that streaming's out, there were a few streaming sites that it was available on. I think I watched this on Shutter, maybe, or maybe on like Hulu or something like that. Um, but I was finally able to watch Pieces after all of these years. And it's perhaps, you know, the epitome of 80s trash cinema. Um, I. I won't say that I loved it just because it was overhyped for me for so long. I gave it a solid three stars. It was overhyped for so long that I went in with sort of unrealistic, unrealistic expectations about how pieces should be. Um, it opens with a kid murdering his mother with an axe. He chops her up with a sob because he was playing with a jigsaw puzzle of a naked woman and he's getting in trouble. So right from like that opening scene, you know, you're getting into some trash. Um, it was a co-production between Spain, the U.S. and Puerto Rico, but was largely shot in Boston. Um, there's a very iconic pool scene. There's an insane elevator kill. Um, it, and for some reason, <clears throat> there was a guy who didn't notice that the guy came in with a chainsaw. He cuts off his arms and there's blood spurting all over the place. There's an intense waterbed scene and the waterbed essentially turns into a bloodbath, I would say. Um, and of course there's the iconic ending, which everyone knows about. I knew about the ending even before I had seen the film pieces. Um, it's a good film. It's sort of like a mystery. You're trying to figure out who's killing who. And overall, it's a good film. Not great. It's not my favorite 80s slasher by a mile. But I do appreciate what it is. I appreciate what it did. Um, very strange production. Um, of course, collaborating with a bunch of different people and shooting in an area um, of Boston, even though, you know, it was a Spain, U.S., Puerto Rico production. They're shooting it in Boston. Um... Again, a film that I probably shouldn't have hyped up too much for myself because, again, as I said, I went in with very, very unrealistic expectations about how pieces should be. Coming up next, I watched the film Prey, which was a prequel to a lot of the Predator films. They hunt to live. It lives to hunt. On the Great Plains in 1917, Naru, a fierce and highly skilled warrior, sets out on the path her people with an unknown danger threatens them. But the prey she's stalking turns out to be a highly evolved alien predator with a technically advanced arsenal. I thought Prey was a very good, solid entry in the Predator franchise. I haven't seen every single Predator film, um, but I think Prey stacks up right there along with some of the, the better ones. Obviously not as good as the original Predator. Um, I haven't seen the Adrian Brody Predator, so I don't really, I can't really speak on that. Um, but for what it is, I thought Prey was very good. Um, it's one where I was sort of perplexed that they put it straight to streaming. I don't know if it has anything to do with, like, Disney buying the rights to 20th Century Fox. I'm sure it does, 
Um, but this is something you easily could have put into theaters. It was something I didn't really hear about, like marketing wise. I never really saw trailers for it. Didn't really see much like scrolling on Instagram or Facebook or anything like ads for it. It was something that was just kind of shoved on Hulu. And I, I mean, people saw it. I don't want to like say that people didn't see it, but I definitely think it could have been a lot bigger of a film than it was had you just put it in the theater. Like, I don't understand why you would put something like this straight to streaming, something that would have made money. I mean, it's a Predator film. It would have made money. Like, I don't know what the inner workings of that logic were, but regardless, Prey, perfectly serviceable Predator film, had a lot of fun watching it. Um, not one that I really am going to revisit too, too often, um, but regardless, very fun, very good nonetheless. Coming up the next day, I watched Hack-O-Lantern, another film that I had been had been on my list for a long time. Something I always wanted to track down on VHS, but again, another film very hard to find, out of print. Um, sort of like a Holy Grail sort of VHS film if you're able to find it on VHS. Of course, from 1998 in a solid 87 minutes, which is perfect. That's the that's a good length that you would want a VHS film to be. I personally, I think it's a little, seven minutes too long. That solid 80-minute mark, it's like, all right, bet, masterpiece. The power is in the blood. After witnessing his father's ritualistic murder at the hands of his grandfather as a child, Tommy finds those cl- Tommy finds those closest to him being targeted by a mysterious killer as his grandfather attempts to uh, induct him into a cult. Again, sorry, stumbled over my words a little bit. Um, three stars for me. Solid, perfect film to watch in that style. I mean, it's not. For me, it's hard to give a film like that over three, four stars unless it's a literal masterpiece. But Hack Lantern, I loved it. I thought it was great. I watched it in August because I was trying to get into that Halloween spirit. And this perfectly did it for me. I loved the opening music. Um, there's a cast member named Larry Coven, which made me laugh because, you know, Coven Man sounds too much like Oven Man. Fake spider in the bath prank scene. Of course, there was a great scene like that where it's like on a soap on a rope. Really ridiculous stuff there. I'm just kind of reading my general notes because, again, I saw this a long, long time ago. Um, Of course, there was a kid who was playing with guns as a child and he grew up to be a cop. Typical, typical boys in blue fucking fuck blue lives matter. Fuck all that shit. Um, Tommy plays a cassette tape, then it becomes a literal music video, which is really what you want out of these 80s films. There's always got to be like a musical break with a band or something like that. Um, There's a legendary scene with a guy explaining naked girls in a naked girl magazine. Um, It literally comes out of nowhere. They're all at this Halloween party, and then all of a sudden this dude just starts busting out in a stand-up comedy set, making jokes about Halloween, Thanksgiving, and then just starts doing impressions of a turkey. It literally makes no sense. It's the most Miles thing of all time. Sounds exactly like something Miles would do. Just And it for me, it just really tied everything in. It's like, this is exactly what you want with these 80s low-budget movies. Just shit that like comes out of nowhere, and it really stands out. It makes you remember it um, long after you've seen it. Um... And there's the satanic cult, of course, that is 
uh, surrounding all of this. The grandpa is actually in charge of this cult, as I said in the description. And it's just funny because all of them are wearing like their just normal jeans and flannels underneath this cloak. Um, it just looks like all these guys in the Midwest or South were like on their way home from work and just stopped by the satanic ritual real fast on their way home. Like you can see like their jeans and their work boots and stuff under the cloaks. It's great. Um, I love the aesthetic of the film. I love the vibe. I love the Halloween spirit. I love the shitty acting, camera work, audio. It's all just part of the charm. Um, it was back in the spotlight recently, and I t use that term loosely, spotlight, with quotations, um, just because it was featured on an episode of The People's Court, because Massacre Video, who, which was the company that kind of released it um, on Blu-ray DVD later on, sued someone who uploaded the film to YouTube. Of course, typical. So yeah, I use Back in the Spotlight loosely. Um, it is available on Shutter. As I said, that's where I watched it. Very good film, would watch again. Again, it's perfect for the aesthetic. Something I've had this intrusive thought in my brain for the past couple weeks, couple months. Well, it's something I've wanted to do forever. But every night, I'm like asking my wife, because my wife is on a strict hair washing schedule so like we can't have a fire if she's not planning to like wash her hair the next morning or later that night or whatever so i've been trying to like strategically plan a night where we can have a fire outside and bring a tv out there and like watch like a spooky movie out by the fire it's something i've been planning plotting scheming in the back of my brain for a long time and this would be a perfect film to watch out there in front of the fire um, stuff like Blair Witch Project 2 would be a good pick. Um, just anything with spooky vibes, which also sort of deal with, like, outside-ish. But nothing, like, too serious. Like, Blair Witch Project is still a little, like, goofy and shit like that. Um, nothing too serious. I think it'd be a ton of fun. So those are my intrusive thoughts for the day. We've got one more horror film for August, and it is The Lodge. And The Lodge is another film that had been hyped for me to like sort of unrealistic expectations for some reason. This came out in 2019, 2020 maybe would have been when it was coming out in theaters around here. Basically it was the last like big horror film that I remember people going to see before the world completely shut down. Miles was talking about it constantly. I was hearing people on the internet talking about it constantly. And even as recently in like, a couple weeks before I saw the film, I ran into my friend Pat Kennedy. Quick plug for my dude Pat Kennedy. Quick name drop um, from Light Years and, of course, the band with Parker Cannon, No Pressure. Um, I was talking to him, and we were just kind of, like, catching up or whatever. been a while since I've seen him. And he comes out of nowhere, and he's like, have you seen The Lodge yet? So this is a film that everyone that I knew was talking about for some reason who had seen it. And I didn't see it in theaters. I didn't really know too much about it other than what people were talking about. But one night I actually had Jared and Maisie over and we all watched The Lodge together just to see. Cause, and he said the same thing too. Jared was talking about how he, everyone was talking about The Lodge like all the time to him. And it was August. This was not the time to be watching The Lodge. It is a film that takes place in the dead of winter. But regardless, we're like, we're going to watch The Lodge. And I came out actually really liking it. Um, a solid three and a half stars for me. Very good film. I'm not sure what Jared rated it. Let's take a peek on the Letterboxd ratings. Jared also gave it three and a half. My wife gave it three and a half. 
Um, everyone across the board giving it good ratings. Miles gave it four and a half. Pat, as I said, gave it three and a half. The only, there's only a couple people that have given it under three. Pretty much everyone across the board, three and a half to four and a half stars for the Lodge. You're not welcome here. A soon-to-be stepmom is snowed in with her fiancé's two children at a remote holiday village. Just as relations begin to thaw between the trio, some strange and frightening events take place place and there's obviously a lot going on in this film it's hard to really talk too much about the plot without giving things away but basically some crazy shit is happening in this cabin we don't know if the stuff is actually happening we don't know if the stepmom's mental state is just shattering and she's imagining all of these things also the kids as well we don't know if their mental state is all the way there as we mentioned the parents are kind of going through a little bit of a divorce uh well soon to be stepmom they are the kids have already dealt with a lot of family stuff and this is the stepmom who's coming in to replace their mother so there is a lot of tension there so we don't know if the kids are potentially screwing with the mom we don't know if the kids are dealing with their own mental issues due to you know it's i never went through a divorce but i can imagine from the people that i do know who had parents who got divorced when they were children. It's a very traumatic sort of thing. So are they dealing with something? And are these things actually happening to the house? Are they imagining it's happening to the house? Is the mom fucking with the kids? Are the kids fucking with the mom? To make all these weird things seem to be happening. You sort of see the mystery unfold. And it's a it's a good film. Again, I don't want to get into too much about it. Just simply because of the mystery to it all because it plays from all of those angles right so you don't really know what you're supposed to believe what you're not supposed to believe it portrays all of these in the film as a logical thing that could be happening right so it's up to you to kind of put the pieces together and figure out what is actually going on up until the ending where you do see some of the reveals but regardless, very, very good film. And that wraps up everything that I watched in August. Moving on to the month of September. There are actually quite a few more films in September than there were in August. As I said, our August was pretty light in terms of horror. But September sounds just like me watching a ton of films gearing up for October, watching a ton in September and October, naturally. The first thing that I watched in October is actually a rewatch and it's not a film, but it's basically a film. It is over the garden wall. Of course, the mini series that aired on cartoon network starring Elijah Wood, very, very great mini series. If you put all the episodes together, it's about the length of a feature film. Maybe it's like a hundred ish minutes or so. Will you take a peek? Two brothers, Wirt and Greg, find themselves lost in the unknown, a strange forest adrift in time. With the help of a wise old woodsman and a foul-tempered bluebird named Beatrice, Wirt and Greg must travel across this strange land in hopes of finding their way home. Join them as they encounter surprises and obstacles on their journey through the wood. This is another series that is universally praised and loved by pretty much everyone who has seen it. I think it's a masterpiece. Um, it's something that we don't watch every Halloween. We do like every other Halloween is when we watch Over the Garden Wall. 
Just because we don't want it to get played out, you know, maybe once a year is a little too much. So every other year, we've been watching Over the Garden Wall. Of course, this is a series I reviewed in depth on the show in video format a few years back. Um, I think it's a masterpiece. Every episode is very different from the last with similar aesthetics, similar vibes. But I mean, there's the episode with the orphanage. There's the episode where they're with the little like pumpkin men in the field. Um, of course, there's the episodes towards the end where it's getting more into unraveling how all this started. One of the episodes is like a prequel to when they are getting lost in the woods. It's just a very great series beginning to end. Very charming. Um, great music throughout. I think they sell the soundtrack on vinyl. Um, the song Potatoes and Molasses is an absolute banger. Um, if you know, you know. Um, just all around great series, great performances. Christopher Lloyd's in there as well. Um, of course, as I said, Elijah Wood plays the main character. And overall, like just a very, very great series from beginning to end. Again, some episodes I like better than others, but you got to watch it as a full cohesive piece. And it is very great. Some suspenseful moments, some tear-jerking moments, some laugh-out-loud funny moments. Just all around a great series. Next, we get into Cursed Films Season 2, which I watched on Shudder, Shudder Original Series. I watched Cursed Films Season 1 back when it first came out, I want to say like 2020-ish. 2022 is when the newest season came out. I believe it came out in 2022. Um, but again, I watched it that year. So I think I think that I watched it roughly around when it came out. It covers various different films, and I will break down sort of some of the films and some of the series, um, the theories on why the film is a cursed film. I do think that this second season, it kind of is more what the first season could have been. Like, I remember one of my big critiques from season one is, like, they do an episode on The Exorcist, and then they show, like, an actual exorcism, which has nothing to do with the film that they're talking about. It's just the act of having an exorcism. This one, I think it remained much more focused than season one. Um, I don't necessarily like the films as much that they cover, but I think that they covered them much better in the second season, if that makes sense. The first one they talk about is The Wizard of Oz. It covers all of the theories in, well, some of it is true fact, but it covers all of the mysteries of Wizard of Oz, along with a lot of the fucked up things that happened on the set of The Wizard of Oz, like using asbestos for the snow, um, Judy Garland, and all the traumatic things that she had to endure on the set of Wizard of Oz that affected her for the rest of her life. Um, but then again, like all the like rumors and stuff like the little people orgies, um, you know, so on and so forth. There's like the they're talking about the Munchkin suicide in this. There was the big thing where you can see like one of the little people hanging themselves in the background of one of the scenes. It breaks that down. Um, I don't think that it was cursed. Um, I think that they were just negligent and didn't know what they were doing. I think that they were just a very, very flawed production. <clears throat> and, you know, they're thinking, like, this is going to be a huge film. We're in black and white. We're in color. Like, this is going to be, like, a monumental film. Like, they were trying to do something that was bigger than what they were. And they were not thinking of the repercussions that it could have had. Um, Like, the Tin Man was poisoned from the paint. Um, and I think they had to recast the Tin Man, actually. because So they had to find someone who wasn't 
going to have a reaction to the type of paint that they were using. It was just a very, very flawed production by people who probably should have done their homework a little bit better. I don't think it was cursed. Um, the next one they're talking about is Rosemary's Baby. Um, Anton LaVey was involved as a consultant on the film. Um, the lot it was shot on was built upon a cemetery. Um, the composer died the same way a character dies in the film after being in a coma for three months. Um, of course, there's Charles Manson stuff involved in Rosemary's Baby as well. And this one might be a cursed film. This one might be a cursed film. Wizard of Oz, not so much. Um, there was also a film called Stalker, which I haven't heard of before, uh, but it was interesting learning about it in cursed films. Um, there were six weeks of footage that were damaged from the film. They had to reshoot everything that they lost with only a fraction of what the budget was, obviously. Um, many cast and crew members died shortly after, and the film predicted the Chernobyl um, meltdown. So that's why it's cursed. So this one... Um, hadn't heard the film going in, but it was definitely an interesting sort of film to learn about throughout the course of episode three of Curse Films. Episode four about the serpent and the rainbow, I thought by far was the best and most engaging episode of the show. Um, it was probably the least cursed film as the effects artist says, it's more of a blessed film because there's things that could have gone so much worse, but didn't. So it's kind of the anti-cursed film. It's a film where, you know, there was a ton of things that could have gone wrong and should have gone wrong, but the fact that they all made it out without any major complications is truly a blessing. Um, I think that this is my favorite episode out of maybe both of the seasons of Cursed Film, The Serpent and the Rainbow. So if there's one to watch, just to kind of see what you're getting yourself into to see if you want to watch the whole series, um, The Serpent and the Rainbow would definitely be the episode I would recommend you check out. The last episode is about Cannibal Holocaust, which is a horrible film all the way around. Um, just as a film itself, the production of the film, the people involved in the film, all around terrible. Um... I do not support Cannibal Holocaust. It sucks ass. I don't like it. Um, they killed a turtle on screen. They did a lot of fucked up shit on screen. They did a lot of things illegally. They did a lot of very, very bad things. Do not like the film. Um, don't recommend. Um, but it's a good episode of the series. Um, it's a good episode of Cursed Films just to kind of learn about why you shouldn't support Cannibal Holocaust. Um, but again, I liked Cursed Films Season 2. Um, the next one that I watched just a few days later, as I said, we're getting closer to watching things like almost every day, sometimes multiple films a day when I have time. Um, I watched The Hunger, the classic film with your boy David Bowie and Susan Sarandon, the goat, The Hunger from 1983, directed by Tony Scott, nothing human loves forever. Miriam promised her lovers the gift of eternal life, but John, her companion for centuries, suddenly discovers that he is getting old minute by minute. So he looks to Dr. Sarah Roberts, a researcher on the mechanisms of aging, and asks her for help. Great film. I gave it three and a half stars. Literally, the film opens up, and with, within seconds, you're hearing Bella Lugosi's Dead by Bauhaus as the opening track. 
perfection. Not only that, it turns out we are at a goth nightclub and we're watching a performance of the song. So literally, like within seconds, you're completely captivated. You're brought into this world. Um, it's very bizarrely edited once the song starts winding down. Um, come on, man. You got to let that shit play out. You got to let the full Bella Lugosi's Dead song play out in full music video form at the beginning of your vampire movie. Um, but other than that, it's a really great film. Great performances all the way around by David Bowie, Susan Sarandon. The whole cast does great. Um, there's a very disturbing scene that hits very close to home for me. Um, there's a decomposing old man making out with his young wife. That is how I feel a lot of the time. I feel like I'm an old, decrepit young man, and my wife is, you know, she's at the the peak. I'm just this decrepit old dude. Um, <laughs> That's just how I feel sometimes. Um, the biggest critique is that it feels like it takes forever to get started, and then it's over. Like, it feels like you're building and building and building, and then there's this epic climax, and then it's just done. It feels like you should have had that high that was going for a lot longer. Um, that's my only critique, but overall, it's very well acted, very well directed, very well shot. Um, they make this house look huge, even though I don't think it's that big. Um, they make everything just look epic. Like, the whole film, you're just kind of, like, mesmerized. Um, but my my main critique is that it is very slow. So if you're not someone who's into more slow-moving um, horror films, maybe The Hunger isn't the way to go, but I really enjoyed The Hunger. Um, for me, I think it was a very good film. Um, the next day, I watched UFOs Are Real, which is the controversial alien sort of documentary from the 70s that everyone has seen in all of the, the pictures. Like, you see the alien on the table and stuff like that. Like, that's from UFOs Are Real. We dare you not to believe after you've seen UFOs Are Real. One of several 1970s documentaries on the subject of unidentified flying objects, UFOs, supporting the view that Earth is visited regularly by extraterrestrial engines and aliens. This is a film, it's, it's very short. It's a very short sort of documentary. It's only about 90 minutes. And it's everything that you think it is. It's a cheesy documentary. Again, I take everything that you see in the film with a grain of salt. But it's one of those cult sort of documentaries. It's one of those documentaries that um, you see the imagery from all the time, even if you don't necessarily know what it's from. Like, they use the stock images from this constantly. So UFOs are real. Maybe it's not the best film to, like, watch, but it's a good film to maybe see, like, once, like, familiarize yourself with the images from it. Because, again, it is stuff that you're going to be seeing all the time. Coming up next is an absolute banger. An absolute classic from one of the greatest horror directors of all time, Dario Argento. And in a film that isn't talked about as much as like his bigger ones. This is like one of his second tier kind of films. At least like for me, like second, not second tier for me, because this might be one of my favorites. But like second tier in terms of like critical acclaimedness. Um, Deep Red. Very iconic poster for Deep Red. Something that really draws you in. When you see the cover of it, you want to watch it. And everyone who's seen it knows that it is a masterpiece. Um, when the screaming starts and the blood begins to flow, pinch yourself and keep repeating, I'm at the movies, I'm at the movies, I'm at the movies, I'm at the movies. What a tagline that is. Hell of a tagline for Deep Red. 
A musician witnesses the murder of a famous psychic and then teams up with a feisty reporter to find the killer while evading attempts on their lives by the unseen killer bent on keeping his dark secret buried. Something that makes this film work is the, a lot of the things that work in all of the Dario Argento films that are critically acclaimed, right? It's got a kick-ass soundtrack. Goblin fucking kills it in Deep Red. Um, great fucking opening track. Great music throughout. I really like the way the mystery plays out in this one. Um, I really like the acting. Of course, it has the signature Argento style. Um, J. Leo style um which of course was popularized by him mario bava fulci guys like that um jaleo style maybe i'm not sure how you pronounce it even though i am italian um but very very good visually good striking colors good mystery good script great story great direction um deep red gets three and a half stars for me Again, it's not something I have like a super emotional attachment to, so it's hard to give it above a three and a half for me. But I think it's a damn near close to masterpiece levels. Um, Jared apparently doesn't like it. He gave it two and a half stars. Everyone else on my letterbox is right with four stars, four and a half, some three and a halves in there. Jared with his two and a half. I'm going to ask him what he did not like about Deep Red. I'm going to have to really roast him on his letterbox scores for Deep Red. I'm not sure what that is all about. But again, great film, um, great mystery. I love the acting in it. It's very amusing watching um, Italian films. The acting is so funny um, when they're redubbing it sometimes, but it really works for the style. It's definitely a style in and of itself, and I absolutely love Deep Red, and you should go and check it out. And actually moving right along, we're heading into a film that I saw the same exact day as Deep Red. Had the homies come over, Jared, Maisie, and I think Miles was with us too, um, and my illustrious wife. We all went to go see Pearl, the follow-up, of course, to a film that had come out earlier in the year, X. Pearl, the follow-up. Um, it's a prequel, actually, so I shouldn't say follow-up. It's continuing the story, however, um, the events that took place before the film X. Of course, directed by Ty West and starring Mia Goth. The Extraordinary Origin Story. Trapped on her family's isolated farm, Pearl must tend to her ailing father under the bitter and overbearing watch of her devout mother. Lusting for a glamorous life like she's seen in the movies, Pearl's ambitions, temptations, and repressions all collide in this stunning, technicolor-inspired origin story of X. X's iconic villain. Sorry, I stuttered a couple times, and that those are the things that happen to me when I read things aloud. I stutter, and I can never make it through a sentence without screwing up at least a couple of times. Um, but Pearl, I thought it was a very good companion piece to X. Um, if you know a little bit about the production process of this film, I don't. I'm a little hazy on the details. I read up on it. Um, actually a long time ago, so I'm a little bit fuzzy on the exact events that went down, but from what I remember, someone on the set got COVID, or it was right when COVID was starting, so they actually had to shut down production for a few weeks, and in that time, they ended up developing and writing Pearl, um, while they were on the set of X. So, 
it doesn't have like as in depth of a story. It's a little bit of a simpler story. I think it does feel like it was something that was just kind of put together last minute. Like even Jared said at the time when we're watching X in theaters, and of course it shows the trailer for Pearl at the very end of the credits, that he thought it wasn't even real. He thought it was just kind of like a joke thing to like tie, like kind of like to bookend the movie. He didn't think it was real, but it was in fact real. So I, I think given what they had, it was actually a very, very valiant effort. I think it was actually a very good film. I gave it three stars and everything. Um, I'm very much looking forward to Maxine, which is the third piece of the trilogy, um, which is coming out next year, I believe, or I, I, it might come out later this year. I can't really remember when it's coming out exactly, but very excited for Maxine as well. Um, I thought Pearl was great. There's a ton of great scenes in it where like she's dancing with the scarecrow and she has her big like tear jerking monologue in the film, um, which I liked. Jared thought it was overrated. He thought you should have cut it down a little bit, but I liked it. I think that you did a perfect job. Um, you know, I thought that the scene was absolutely perfect the way it was. Um, but there's not as much to say about Pearl. Um, it's something that I'll probably give a rewatch and a more in-depth review when the whole trilogy comes out. It'd be fun to do a complete retrospective of the trilogy. But I did end up seeing that the same day that I saw Deep Red. I actually saw a lot of films, like, every day, like, two films a day for, like, every other time I watched a film this month. It was never, like, one film a day for the rest of the entire month. It was two films per day for the rest of this entire month. Coming up in... Uh, next, it was actually the following day, I ended up watching Frankenhooker with my wife. It was her choice to watch Frankenhooker. She, out of all the things she could have selected, she selects this. A terrifying tale of sluts and bolts. A medical school dropout loses his fiance in a tragic lawnmower incident and decides to bring her back to life. Unfortunately, he was only able to save her head, so he goes to the red light district in the city and lures prostitutes into a hotel room so he can collect body parts to reassemble her. Um, what really is there to say about Frank and Hooker? It is one of those cult classic films, kind of like, you know, your poultry geists, your trauma stuff. It's one of those classic films you hear people talk about. I associate it with films that I love that are cult films at that time, like Death Row Diner and Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers and stuff like that. It fits in very well with those films. And again, there's not like as much to say about it. It's definitely, it's more tame than you think it is. Like you hear Frank and Hooker. And you think it's going to be just like a total like bottom of the barrel, like garbage type of film. But it's actually like relatively well made. It's, I mean, given you have to put this into perspective of all of the, you know, horror films that I've seen in the 80s where sometimes you can't see anything. You can't hear anything. The scripts make no sense. Um, in comparison to that, it's well made. It's competent. You can watch it from beginning to end. It's not boring. It's got its funny moments. As I said, it's very tame compared to what you're used to like you think there's going to be a lot it's going to be a lot raunchier than you think it's actually you think it's going to be a lot raunchier than it actually is but i enjoyed frankenhooker good solid you know a film that knows what it is it's not trying to be anything too crazy and overall i very much enjoyed it a little less than the other film that i watched that day um i've been watching a lot of italian cinema around this time of year if you haven't noticed so far because the next film I watched was Black Sunday of course by Mario Bava 1960 one of the best horror films of 1960 right up there with Psycho 
Um, it's hard for me to really pick which one I like more than the other one. I think they're like neck and neck. I think those are the two best horror films of 1960. Um, Black Sunday, of course. Um, not to be confused with Black Sabbath, which was also a Baba film from around that time. Stare into these eyes, discover deep within them the unspeakable, terrifying secret of Black Sunday. It will paralyze you with fright. A vengeful witch and her fiendish servant return from the grave and begin a bloody campaign to possess the body of a witch's beautiful look-alike descendant. Only the girl's brother and a handsome doctor stand in her way. This film is an absolute classic. I don't really want to go too much into it. Um, as I said, the Italian films have a distinct like style. And even though this one isn't black and white, you still get like all of the... It doesn't make, like, the set pieces and the cinematography look any, like, worse. Like, you can still tell that there's, like, a distinct style to all of this. I love the way the film was shot. Although it is just black and white, it's very stylized black and white. I think that this film is absolutely gorgeous. Performance is good all the way around. Um, I think it's really fun. I think it's a really fun flick. Um, definitely an essential 60s horror watch. If you haven't seen this film and you're looking for films that came out in the 60s that you need to watch, Black Sunday is definitely one you need to add to your list because it's absolutely essential cinema from that time period. Um, one of my favorite Baba flicks. Again, it's hard to pick um, one of your favorites, but that one is easily one of my favorites. Um, coming up... So those were two on the 19th. I watched both of those films on the 19th. I took a little bit of time off from watching films. I don't know what the deal was. I must have been like busy at work or something. Um, but on the 27th, I watched two films in a row, as I said. One of which is kind of horror adjacent. Um, it's not really a horror film. Um, it is a film about the making of a horror film. One of my favorite films of all time. A film I've talked about to death on a plethora of different shows of the House of Horror. So I will again keep this brief because I've broken this down film in depth. And the film they made in it, which was Coven, but this was American Movie. I watched this in my class, actually. For those of you that um, are listening to this this far and don't know already, I've been teaching at Cleveland State University. And I wanted to show this film and I'm going to continue to show this film every semester that I teach because I think it's essential for film students to watch American movie um so that's what I did I made them watch it because you're able to see so many like making of the films and documentaries about Star Wars a documentary about Indiana Jones the Godfather like whatever it is there's a documentary about the greatest films of all time but what about the greatest film you've never seen what about the greatest film that never got made um so it's a very like different dynamic because it's more close to home i guess because even though these students are like watching again like documentaries about these critically acclaimed high budget films chances are they're going to be working on more low budget type stuff in their career especially when they're starting out. So I think American Movie is a good way to kind of like show them more or less what they're going to be getting into on like this indie scale. Um, again, I'm not going to go too in-depth about the film. That's just my little spiel about American Movie. The next film that I watched later that day, because of course that was in class and then I'm getting ready at nighttime, I'm watching, I think this was either the day it came out or pretty damn near close to the day, um, The Monsters by Rob Zombie came out. The straight to Netflix film 
bizarrely enough, a straight-to-Netflix film. Um, I guess given the quality of it and after watching it, I understand why they didn't put it in theaters. It was kind of a direct-to-video thing. Um, but it kind of makes you wish that we could have gotten something a little better than this for the Monsters remake. Um, there are things I like about it. There's things that I don't like about it. We'll get into it in a second. But just to read our description, prepare for the strangest love story ever told. Lily is a typical 150-year-old lovelorn vampire who's looking for the man of her nightmares until she lays eyes on Herman, a seven-foot-tall green experiment with a heart of gold. It's love at first shock as these two ghouls fall fangs over feet for each other in a Transylvanian romance. Unfortunately, it's not all smooth sailing in the cemetery as Lily's father has other plans for his beloved daughter's future, and they don't involve her bumbling new boo. The description of the film makes the film seem much more glamorous and smart than the film actually was. Um, it actually dropped on Netflix on a Tuesday when you think that, you know, it that is a little strange. Like, why would your film come out on Tuesday? But then you got to realize this is a direct-to-video film and DVDs and Blu-rays and shit come out on Tuesdays. So I guess it makes perfect sense that this came out on a Tuesday on Netflix. Um, I remember just the whole film is bizarre. Like, there's so many, like, bizarre choices in the film. Even when, like, the title card shows up, it shows up as a very strange like background very weird like context it's not what you think like you kind of forget you're watching like a monsters film at like the beginning of it like it doesn't like seem like a monsters film at the beginning like lily's going on a date with count orlock nosferatu himself that's funny um he's showing her pictures of his pet rat one of them is named pumpkin after my cat actually um there's so much like rob zombie references in the film like he's referencing himself like there's a club called the living dead girls club um he gives herman munster uh the grandpa gives him an o negative blood shirt as a gift in reference to type o negative i'm assuming this whole film is just very strange and the colors look great um at first i was skeptical that they were doing it in color because of course the original monsters were in black and white the colors look great the film feels great um, it does have the tone of the monsters, like the humor is in tune with how the monsters humor was, but the monsters humor was in the 60s. So it's not laugh out loud funny, it's really goofy, it's really corny. Um, again, I wish they could have done a lot of things better. One thing I did like is the way that they treated the characters. Um, although I don't think that, you know, Sherry Moon Zombie would probably be my first choice. For Lily Munster, I mean, she does the job well. She does the job very well. Um, the other actors, I mean, you think that that is Grandpa Munster, and Herman Munster acts just like Herman. They both did. All of the, the three main cast did a good job. It's just, it doesn't... It's true to the characters, but there's just something a little too self-aware about it. Um, the only scene for me that, like, really works, there's one scene in the film that I actually think is phenomenal. You know, it's like... I'm trying to... It's, like, backstage at one of Herman's shows because Herman's, like, performing. And Lily comes to meet him backstage. And he's, like, excited to talk to her. And he's so nervous. He's, like, shutting the door. And he's, like... You can hear him on the other side of the door, like, jumping up and down, like, all excited that he talks to her. And then he opens the door again. And he's, like, all cool, calm, and collected. And he gets nervous. He shuts the door again. And he's freaking out on the other side of the door. But she can hear the entire thing. 
Um, I just think that's a really charming scene that's really in tune with the monsters. That's when the film felt the most monsters, was that singular scene. Um, there's, there's, I mean, there's cameos in it, Cassandra Pearson, Elvira is in it, and... It, I, to me, it's just kind of a missed opportunity because I do think that there are so many elements of a good monsters film in here, and it just doesn't deliver on everything. So overall, it does turn out to be sort of a missed opportunity. Um, but I am thankful that at least they made it, I guess, because I mean, how often are people going to want to remake the monsters besides crazy people like me? So I'm glad that it does exist, but in the end, it could have been. It could have been, like, phenomenal. Like, it had all the elements to be, like, something really great, and they just kind of... I don't know. Don't know. Moving on a few days later. Now we're getting close to October. This is the last two films that I watched in September. We're moving on to, of course, the anthology classic from Toby Hooper and John Carpenter, Body Bags. Zip yourself in tight. Three tales, each more terrifying than the last. A woman who is stalked by a crazed serial killer. A man who pays the ultimate price for a beautiful head of hair and a vision of life. Seen through the eyes of a killer. Um, it's a made-for-TV film that aired on Showtime, although it, it kind of feels like a made-on-TV film, but not really. It's not like a deal-breaker or anything. Like, if you say, like, oh, this was a TV movie, it sort of has, like, a negative connotation to it, but this doesn't have a negative connotation to it. Um, they wanted to make it a series, but it never really came to be. Um, I love this, uh, anthology. I, I wouldn't put it in, like, the upper echelon of horror anthologies that I've seen. Um, but there's one that takes place at the Haddonfield gas station, as I mentioned, a little reference to Halloween. Um, there's a lot of good stuff in here. I wish there was a little bit more variety in the anthologies, I guess, because there's two of them that are about medical procedures that have gone wrong. Um, the content in them is very different, obviously. Um, but I think they could have come up with a little bit of a different idea. Because um, it's not like these were all developed. I mean, they meant, meant it to be a series, I guess. I mean, I guess if you had a bunch of ideas like lined up of what you wanted to do for the show and you felt these were the best, these are what you would put into the film. But I do think that, like, you could have had, like, a different sort of vibe. Like, you know what I mean? Like, in Creepshow, they have one that's, like, a monster on the loose. They have, like the hitchhiker they have the cockroach one they have one about a zombie like all of them like seem very different some of those were from creep show too but like you know what i mean like it's all very different sort of styles of anthology i guess like in trick-or-treat I, I mean you have the vampires you have the kids on the school bus like everything is like a different sort of vibe like i guess having like two medical experiments in the same sort of anthology i thought they could have come up with something a little bit better but they're all very good of course john carpenter um not only is directing here but he's also portraying like the sort of like crypt creeper type character in it um so that's great as well um no complaints about body bags i think it's a very solid horror anthology and the other film that i watched in that same exact day is a found footage film on Shutter that I've been wanting to watch basically since it came out because I love films in this style. It's the WNUF Halloween special. And it's made to look like it was a Halloween special from the 80s. 
Um, it's shot like a news broadcast, like the news anchors are dressed up. They're going to like explore a haunted house and stuff like that. I think it is a phenomenal like concept for a horror film. Um, so let's just get into the description. The infamous 1987 live broadcast. Originally broadcast live on October 31st, 1987, the WNUF Halloween special is a stunning expose of terrifying supernatural activity that unfolded at the infamous Weber House, the site of ghastly murders. Local television personality Frank Stewart leads a group of paranormal investigators, including a Catholic exorcist, Father Joseph uh, Matheson, and the prolific husband and wife team of Lewis and Claire Berger. You always know when it's like a small independent film because the descriptions of the film are including all these names and all these details that aren't necessarily important to like a description of a film that they're including all this stuff which i think it's charming reading it out loud um but in reality i don't think you needed all this in your description but to continue on with the ridiculously long description together the experts explore the darkest corners of the supposedly haunted weber house trying to prove the existence of the demonic entities within did they find the horrific truth or simply put superstitious rumors to rest? Um, again, as I said, I love the concept. I love the aesthetic. It feels so nostalgic, even though I wasn't alive in the 80s. I just feel really nostalgic for looking at this. Um, it's very charming. When you're watching the film, it's hard not to think of your Halloweens as a kid. Um, cut in between the main plot of the story as i said the news package and the halloween special that the news station is putting on it actually has in a bunch of like fake commercials and stuff like that um i think they kind of go a little too far from what i remember i think they were using like way too many like fake commercials and stuff it kind of distracted you at a point like i think at some point the newscaster should have been like now we're casting the next hour of this commercial free or something like that but it still like breaks up for commercials i think they should have like had commercials at the beginning to kind of set the tone but then at a point been like all right the next hour we're doing this commercial free this is sponsored by blah 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 blah, and just kept the main story going i think it was kind of a detriment to the film to kind of have it keep being broken up with commercials and stuff like that um there's a lot of protesters at this house from what I remember. It's called like Harvest, a religious group who hates Halloween. There's a crazy lady who says that it's satanic. Um, it's obviously not the most, you know, like entertaining film from beginning to end. The pacing is weird, as I said, because it keeps getting broken up with commercials. There are some slower parts and elements like that because it does feel very real. So I guess they did do a good and accurate job of making it feel how this would have looked and felt if it actually existed, but I guess it doesn't really, you know, make it the most entertaining thing throughout. Um, the main newscaster involved Frank. He's an asshole, but he's really hilarious, and he's, like, roasting all the audience members outside of the house, so that's entertaining. Um, I think if you're not going to, like, sit down and, like, watch this film, then it's just something good to have on, like, in the background, you know? Like, if you were to be, like, passing out Halloween candy or stuff like that, just throw this on your TV in the background just for, like, the vintage vibes and aesthetic. Um, again, as I said, I mean, I've said it a million times, but it's a really good film, and the problem, the main problem I have with it is the commercial breaks, because it's breaking up so much, like, tension and stuff. Because um, overall, I think there's all the elements in this for a four-star film 
There's all the elements in here for a four-star found footage fake newscast film. But unfortunately, there are a few things in there that made me drop it down to three stars. Um, which is a little bit painful to say. Um, again, another film that I wish that you could kind of like re-edit it. I wish that I had like my romanticized version of this film. Um, but as it is, three-star film. I really enjoyed it. So go check out the WNUF Halloween special if you're looking for like a new like found footage horror film. I liked it quite a bit. And now we are headed officially into the month of October. Some of these films I'm just going to have to sort of breeze by simply for the sake of time. I don't know how long I've been going in this so far, but it's got to be close to an hour at this point, And we're only in October. Um, of course, my horror films sort of fizzle out a little bit in November and December. I was watching far less films than I was watching previous to Halloween. Um, not that I was burnt out or anything, but, uh, you know, just during the holidays, things get a little bit too complicated to sit down and watch films all the time. So, October, I did watch quite a lot of horror films during the month, so I'm going to try to keep these kind of on the briefer side, um, unless I have a lot to talk about about a specific film. But some of these I've reviewed on the show before, so some of them I don't really need to go as in-depth about. Um, like this first one, Halloween Kills. I rewatched this right on October 1st in preparation for Halloween Ends. I watched it for the first time with my wife um, and the first time watching it outside of theaters because, of course, I saw it in theaters when it originally came out. From 2021, directed by David Gordon Green, the second film in the um, new trilogy of Halloween films, Evil Dies Tonight. The nightmare isn't over as unstoppable killer Michael Myers escapes from Laurie Strode's trap to continue his ritual bloodbath. Injured and taken to the hospital, Laurie fights through the pain as she inspires residents of Haddonfield to rise up against Myers. Taking matters into their own hands, the Strode women and other survivors form a vigilante mob to hunt down Michael and end his reign of terror once and for all. And of course, they are unsuccessful in their plight. Um, Halloween Kills, upon my second rewatch, I actually liked it a bit more than I watched when I watched it the first time, because I knew what I was getting myself into. I was able to kind of take the film for what it was and what I not necessarily what I wanted it to be. So I gave it a solid four stars. I really loved Halloween Kills on the second rewatch, as I said. Kills are brutal. It definitely lives up to the name. Um... I love the way Michael kind of feels in this film. He feels like a badass. He's seriously going on a rampage through most of the film. And it just kind of sucks we didn't have any follow-up with this in Halloween Ends. Which, again, I've done several shows about. So when it gets to that point, I'll sort of breeze past my thoughts about Halloween Ends. But it just pisses me off that everything they set up in Halloween Kills, they basically completely ignore in the last film. And it's just annoying because I love Halloween Kills. I mean, in retrospect, I might enjoy watching it better than Halloween 2018 just because it does something so different as opposed to, you know, kind of the first one. It's kind of a remake of H2O, kind of more of what you would expect from a Halloween film. This one was at least a little bit different. They took a little bit more risks, which some were good, some were not so great. Um, but I do enjoy the film. Very, very much so. Love the ghost song in the credits, of course. And yeah, moving right along. I watched a ton of films on October 1st. I must have been off from work or something. Because um, I also watched a film on Shudder called A Hundred Monsters, which is an insane, 
crazy film that's kind of really hard to describe. It's very short. It's only 80 minutes. But it needs to be seen to be believed. It's hard to kind of describe the film. But we'll try to read the description and then I'll say some of my own thoughts about it. A fantastic world unlike anything you have ever seen. A greedy developer in league with a corrupt shrine magistrate brutally tries to drive people out of a tenement building and destroy the shrine and back. But he makes a fatal mistake of hosting a hundred ghost story ceremony without a closing cleansing ritual, opening the door for the monsters to punish the wicked. And this film, I the thing that I think it suffers from, which... A lot of films like this suffer from it. You want to see more of the monsters. Yes, there are a ton of monsters in the film, but you're waiting a long time for things to really start to get going. Um, It's basically, like, it'll start out, and you're kind of just waiting for stuff to happen. There's, like, these two men who are fishing in the cursed lake, and a monk tries to warn them. Um, They eventually are able to catch a fish in the lake. They bring it back to the house, and then... And that's when things really start to go insane with the um, the monsters and stuff like that. Of course, we're waiting for a long time for this to start. But, I mean, she grows, like, this really, like, long-necked and looks insane. There's the... If you've looked at the poster of this film, there's, like, this spirit that kind of looks like an umbrella. And he's first shown as, like, a drawing on the wall that starts to move around. And the animation looks really insane. It's really sick. I love it. Um, and eventually he pops out of the wall, starts dancing around. Um, he has like this giant tongue and he's like licking everyone. And there's just all kinds of insane monsters in this film. If you don't plan on watching the entire thing, at least kind of like look up like, I'm sure that there's like YouTube highlights or just like Google images of what some of these monsters look like because there's a lot of creativity inside of this film. Um, and of course it is a foreign language film. There are subtitles and all of that, but it's just not the most entertaining watch i would say up until you get to the insane shit so i do give it three stars but just take it um just kind of air with caution if you plan on watching it there are several films like this on shutter um i believe it was part of a series or maybe it was like the same director did a bunch of films um but this one i thought was good i do plan on watching some of the other ones in the same series and in the same style um, and just see if they happen to live up to the hype. Maybe there should be, like, a super cut of just all the best moments from all of the films done in this style. The next film I watched on the first was the original VHS. Of course, the horror anthology film. This collection is killer. So the description says. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that or not. When a group of misfits is hired by an unknown third party to burglarize a desolate house and acquire a rare VHS tape, they discover more found footage than they bargained for. Um, I am not the biggest fan of the first VHS film, although I really love the franchise. I think the VHS franchise is, overall, it's got like two films that suck. And then it's got three films that I think are very enjoyable, very entertaining. Um, but the first one is one of the ones that isn't that great. Of course, it's got the film about the siren, which is what it's probably me- most well known for. Um, of course, it got the spinoff film, which was just called Siren. Um, the film just feels too long. Um, I'm not a fan of most of the segments. All the segments in there, I think, are like there's not a standout, right? They're all kind of just mid to me. In the first VHS, there's not 
the greatest segment in all of VHS history. Like, there's nothing... I can't see anyone liking the first VHS film the most out of the series, I guess. Um, it's definitely not the worst out of the series, but I can't see it being anyone's favorite um, overall. Like, you could have, like, your favorite segment from it or whatever, but I can't see, like, stacking it up against the rest in the series. I can't see it being a standout. Um, it did start the series, but I think there were way better films to come, some of which we will get to in a little bit. But between that, I watched The Girl on the Third Floor in the same day. So how many are we up to this day? One, two, three, four, five, six. I watched six films this day, and we're a little over midway. So Girl on the Third Floor, starring, of course, CM Punk, Phil Brooks. I've been wanting to watch this film Ever since it came out, like, in 2019, I remember saying, like, hey, Miles and Jared, like, this film just came out. We all need to watch it sometime. And I kept saying that over and over and over again, and it just never happened. So I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to watch this by myself because if we, if I don't watch it, I'm going to regret it. And it doesn't seem like these guys are going to get together and watch it with me. So I just finally bit the bullet after, like, three years and watched Girl on the Third Floor. Home is where hell is. Don Cock, otherwise known as CM Punk, tries to renovate a rundown mansion with a sorbid history for his growing family only to learn that the house has other plans. I thought the film was decent. I gave it three solid stars. Um, again, as I said, I've brought it up hundreds of times, so I was like, fuck it, it's November 1st, I'm watching it myself. Right off the bat, love the opening credit sequence, love the mood it builds, love the tone. Um, I love the style, the text, the atmosphere. I think the opening credits of this, like, I won't say it's like among the best horror opening credits that I've seen, but it definitely builds the tone, keeps you invested. I love a good opening credit sequence, if you guys haven't known that by now. Um, the first shot of Punk in the film is hilarious. He just walks into this house with these ridiculous khaki pants and dress shirt. Um, to me, I just think it's always hilarious when wrestlers dress up. So I found that just very amusing. Um, of course, he starts to do a bunch of housework while still wearing the ridiculous outfit. It's like, dude, change into something more comfortable. Like, come on, cat. He's doing this in the most dad outfit of all time. Um, but regardless, he starts fixing up the house and he notices that basically there's like cum coming out of the walls, cum coming out of the ceiling, cum coming out of the floor, cum coming out of the sockets, cum coming out of the shower. It just looks disgusting. I mean, it's not actually cum, but it looks insane. Um, Punk's acting and overacting in this film is so bad, but it's endearing. Like you feel like he's trying to do a good job. Um, it's also very weird. If you know CM Punk, he is straight edge. I don't know why it took me so long to think of the word, but he's straight edge. But in the film, it shows him drinking heavily and smoking in the film, which I just thought was kind of funny and ironic. Um, obviously, they probably weren't real, but it was just amusing to watch if you kind of know the backstory of who he is. Um, Girl on the Third Floor, again, it's a mixed bag. There's a lot of cool history in it. Um, like, you get to see the lore of the house and stuff like that. So, it's a good mystery. Um, it's good if you're, like, trying to find something different to watch and if you're a fan of CM Punk. Um, but it's not really an essential watch, in my opinion. But I do like the film. So, Girl on the Third Floor, three stars for me. Go check it out if you so wish. And then I watched VHS 2, which I think is one of the better films in the VHS franchise. And we'll get into it in a second. Who's Tracking You 
Inside a darkened house looms a column of TVs littered with VHS tapes, a pagan shrine to forgotten analog gods. The screen crackle and pop endlessly with monochrome vistas of static while white noise permeates the brain and fogs concentration. But you must fight the urge to relax. This is no mere movie night. These obsolete spools contain more than just magnetic tape. They are imprinted with the very soul of evil. I gave this film three stars. Again, I think the whole series is decent. And VHS 2 is one of the better ones in the franchise. Um, like with all of the VHS films, in my opinion, I don't think any of them have a wraparound that's good. And this is definitely no exception with that. The wraparound sucks. Um, I usually am just not a fan of wraparounds in these kind of anthologies. Um, Adam Wingard has a segment about an eye, and it's, it's a decent enough segment. Um, one of my favorite ones in there is actually this zombie one, and it's really unique because it's like a point of view zombie thing. There's like a guy riding his bike, and he's wearing a GoPro the entire time he's riding his bike. And of course, some things happen, and he ends up turning into a zombie, so we see everything from his perspective as a zombie which i think is really unique because you never really see the horror film from the perspective of the zombie it's always the people trying to get away from the zombie so i think it was just a good um sort of twist on that it does take a little bit to get in but it gets really good once the zombies start to make their way to this birthday party and it just goes full out mayhem from there um, it was directed by the same guy who did the Blair Witch Project, so that's just a nice little interesting fact. Um, there's a cult one um, that has its fun parts. I'm not a fan of a lot of the effects that were used, and it does seem like it goes on for way too long, but it is one of the most insane segments in all of the VHS franchise. It's... When it's said and done, it turns out being one of the better segments in the VHS franchise. Just trying to get into it, it, you need to really get invested into it because the payoff is insane. There's some insane shit once you figure out what this cult is trying to do, and the ending is something that will stick with you forever <laughs> if you watch it. Um, I think it's a really great segment. Um, it's Like I said, it's off the wall. It's ridiculous. Um, it has really fun parts in it. Um... But the last one, too, is fun. It's just a little basic. It's about aliens. Um, but I think it's fun. I love some good alien action. But the two segments that in this that I love is the one with the cult. Um, it's a satanic cult, I believe. I don't want to give anything away. But this cult one and the zombie one, I think, are absolutely phenomenal. And, yeah, all the rest of them are mid, and the wraparound is not so great. But overall, three stars from me. Um, coming up next, we've got Frankenstein 1970, and this, of course, is Karloff's last appearance in, like, a horror-ish type film like this, like a Frankenstein monster type film. Um, so, the one, the only, king of monsters. The Baron's grandson rents the family castle to a TV crew to fund his atomic revival of the family monster. I mean, it's good. It's just weird that this film kind of even exists like I said, this was Boris Karloff at the very tail end of his career. And it's nice to see him in a film like this again. But it's nothing... It's not in the upper echelon of Karloff films, like, by any means. This film, I mean, even in the title, you just read it. It's called Frankenstein 1970. Like, you need to, like, set your expectations with that. 
like just know what you're getting yourself into i mean it's a good solid watch like i don't regret watching it but it's not something i'm going to be returning to frequently there's a ton of other Karloff Frankenstein films to watch. Um, but this one, it's an interesting time capsule. It's an interesting film to exist. Um, it was made in the late 50s. supposed to take place in 1970. But there's nothing that looks like futuristic about it at all. It just still looks like the year it was made. Um, again, not as much to say about it. Um, coming up next is a film that I cannot believe we didn't do like an in-depth review of it on the show or maybe we did do an in-depth review i can't remember talking about it uh maybe i think i did a solo show of it it's not something that i talked to with miles and jared um terrifier 2 so if you guys want to check out my review of terrifier 2 i i believe i did that when it came out um go check that out if not i want to do a rewatch of this film regardless before the third one comes out and kind of talk about the franchise who's laughing now after being resurrected by a sinister entity, Art the Clown returns to Miles County where he must hunt down and destroy a teenage girl and her younger brother on Halloween night. As the body count rises, the siblings fight to stay alive while uncovering the true nature of Art's evil intent. Um, again, I love Terrifier 2. It's a bit long. It is way too long. Over two hours for a horror film like this. like It felt like it was in like Marvel territory. Um, I think if you would have kept it at two hours, maybe even like an hour 45, the film could have benefited. But I'm interested to see what they do with Terrifier 3. I want to see if they're going to, you know, kind of up the ante with the runtime. I hope they don't, unless they make it like worth it. Because a lot of the, a lot of the runtime in here is shit that I don't care about. It's like some stupid... I'm not a fan of the lore, I guess, a lot with a lot of this. I just want to see Art the Clown fucking shit up. Um, there's a lot of like weird mythological aspects to it, which maybe it'll pay off in the third film. Um, but I wasn't the biggest fan of a lot of things during this runtime. But overall, great film. Um, that was on the 6th of October I watched that. On the 8th of October, I rewatched My Friend Dahmer, which of course is a film that I worked on. Um, not necessarily a horror film, but horror sort of adjacent, some true crime um, so I figured I would just bring it up just for the sake of having all my bases covered of stuff that I watched that is kind of in the horror realm. Um, of course, 2017, directed by my dude Mark Myers. Um, shout out to him. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer murdered 17 men and boys between 1978 and 1991. This is the story before that story. Jeffrey Dahmer struggles with a difficult family life as a young boy. During his teenage years, he slowly transforms, edging closer to the serial killer he was to become. Um, I love this film. I loved working on this film. I don't really have too much to say about it without going into a three-hour-long monologue about working on the film and what I think of the film and stuff like that. So I'm just going to kind of keep this to that. Um, great film, great experience. And moving on to a not-so-great film, not-so-great experience, Halloween Ends. Of course, I did a whole rant of this on my own. I did a whole rant of this with Jared and Miles, I believe. And not a fan of this one. Not a fan of Halloween Ends. I will probably rewatch it at some point just to see if my critiques stand up. But I think that they do. This Halloween, their saga ends 
Four years after the events of Halloween in 2018, Lori has decided to liberate herself from fear and rage and embrace life. But when a young man is accused of killing a boy he was babysitting, it ignites a cascade of violence and terror that will force Lori to finally confront the evil she can't control, once and for all. This film sucks. This film is ass. I hate it. Um, I gave it a half a star. One of the lowest rated films that I have on my letterboxd. It just made me feel things inside of my body. It made me contort. I felt like my blood was like curling watching this film. And not in a good way. In a pissed off kind of way. In a way that made me want to never fucking look at it again. But I will be looking at it again. Because I love to torture myself. So at some point I will rewatch Halloween Ends again. I've talked about it enough on other shows. So you guys can go and check those out if you so wish. Another film that I've talked about on other shows and I will be recommending the Coal Shack Loop podcast because we broke down this entire... It's not a film, it's a series um, in depth. It's the Dracula uh, series on Netflix from 2020. Um, Bloody Legend, Transylvania 1897. The blood-drinking Count Dracula is drawing his plans against Victorian London. And to be warned, the dead travel fast. Um, overall, I thought this series was really great. A lot of people don't like the third episode, but I like the third episode. Again, it's not as good as the first two. I'm not an idiot. I'm not going to say it's up on the same par as the first two. Um, but I did like the third episode. Um, but you should go check out the Shack Loop podcast where I broke it down in depth. Um, I also did a video of it back in... It must have been back in 2020. I did a review of it um, over on YouTube, so you can check that out as well. So yeah, that is Dracula from 2020. I will just keep it at that again. I don't want to tread over stuff that I've talked about a million times or stuff that I plan on talking about, um, which are the next couple films that I watch. So I'll breeze over these um, briefly as well. Um, the Thorn Trilogy, Halloween 4, 5, and I watched 6 a couple days later, uh, but I watched 4 and 5 in the same day. So I'll just t talk about them all at once now. Um, these are films that I want to look at in depth. I kind of want to do like their own dedicated podcast to them, um, to the Thorn Trilogy, because especially after rewatching Halloween Ends, the Thorn Trilogy has sort of moved up in my mind as good films, has sort of climbed the tower of Halloween films that I like. Um, I don't know if it's nostalgia or just hindsight or whatever, but I've been really keen on Thorn Trilogy films. Um, just in my memory, like I just remember liking them. I rem I have fond memories of watching them even recently this year. So those are ones I'm definitely going to break down in more detail. So I'm going to be skipping them for now and moving on to VHS 99, which is another film I reviewed on the show. And it's one of my favorite in the VHS franchise. I know it's not saying much. There's what, like five films, um, but it's definitely in the top three out of the five. So that's something. VHS 99 coming out last year in 2022. I watched it. Uh, maybe it wasn't the day it came out, but it was pretty close to the day it came out. VHS goes to hell. A teenager's home video leaks to a series of horrifying revelations. Um, I love, I actually think the wraparound in this is interesting because it kind of ties into a later segment. Like it starts with like this little action figure movie at the beginning. And it reminds me of something that I would have made when I was a kid. 
So I just felt very nostalgic for it. Of course, it's VHS 99 taking place in the year 1999 when I was about seven years old. So I just felt very nostalgic for this iteration of VHS. Um, it was very in tune with my childhood. Um, there's one about a zombie band, which I think is great, them wandering around like in these caverns. There's one about these sorority sisters, I want to say. Um, I think it was a sorority or it was some sort of like club. Um, and they part of the initiation hazing process is you have to spend the night buried alive in a coffin. Um, there's a game show one, which I think is great. There's a funny quote in there that says, I'll, I'll get you a Dreamcast, which I think is just hilarious for 1999. Um, and there's one about Medusa. Um, and of course, it's talking about going to hell. So there's a big hellscape as well. Um, I thought VHS 99 was great. It's not my absolute favorite in the series. I think out of the, out of the five, I think it is number three. I think I like 94 and VHS 2 better, but still very great, very fun. Um, a couple more in October. We got two more for October, so we're coming towards the end of the year. Watch The Crow on October 30th, the day before Halloween, just to get me into that mood. Of course, the tragic um, events that surrounded this film doesn't overshadow how great the film actually is. Um, the film is not great because of the tragedy. The film is great because the film is genuinely a great film, um, and it's just unfortunate that there was a tragedy associated with it. Believe in Angels. Exactly one year after young rock guitarist Eric Draven and his fiancée are brutally killed by a ruthless gang of criminals, Draven, watched over by a hypnotic crow, returns from the grave to exact revenge. What do I need to say about the crow? Everyone loves the crow. Sting based his entire career up until, well, once the crow came out, on the crow. Um, it's a fantastic film. I would say it's even a step above a cult film. Um, it's more like mainstream than a cult film. It is a cult film, um, maybe a few years ago, but now I think it's like a fully mainstream horror action comic book film. Everyone loves The Crow. If you haven't seen The Crow, you need to go check it out. Um, just like this next film. It's a cult film. It's a classic, iconic film. I'm, of course, talking about Scary Movie. Um, I think these movies are terrible, but they are amusing. So... No mercy, no shame, no sequel, says the description. Of course, there's, what, like five scary movies now? Following on the heels of popular teen scream horror movies with atrocious comedy and biting satire, Marlon and Sean Wayans, Shannon Elizabeth, and Carmen Electra pitch in to skewer some of Hollywood's biggest blockbusters, including Scream, I Know What You Did Last Summer, The Matrix, American Pie, and The Blair Witch Project. Um, it's good for a few laughs. Um, again, it is amusing. I I do recommend it because it is a film every, I think everyone should watch, Scary Movie. Um, but it's not the greatest film. So take that with a grain of salt. I recommend you watch it, but don't have high expectations for it. Um, it's very much a product of its, of its time. Um, parody movies are just, in general, not that great. Um, at least modern ones. Like, I love shit like fucking, like airplane and like those 80s ones but those are very much a product of their time the humor hasn't aged as well these i feel like the humor like wasn't even funny at the time like i guess that's the difference like stuff like airplane like you can tell at the time that this was hilarious scary movie like 
in 2000, I can't even imagine this being that funny. Um, it's kind of hard to describe. Um, but Scary Movie, we watched it on VHS. We kind of just had it on for the vibe and the aesthetic of it. Um, again, as I said, a film I do recommend, but just know what you're getting yourself into. Okay, so moving on into the month of November, we are in the home stretch. Um, like I said, we are skipping um, what I watched on November 1st, which was Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, part of the Thorn trilogy. So skipping into some other films that I watched on November 1st. Again, I must have been off that day because I watched three films on November 1st. And so we'll be starting off with the second out of the three, Barbarian. Of course, the new release from that year, 2022, um, starring your boy, the legend, Justin Long and Bill Skarsgård from It. It. Um, both of them do phenomenal jobs in this. The main woman who's in this film as well also does a phenomenal job. Um, fantastic performances all the way around. A really unique creature as we'll call it we'll call it a creature in the film um but let's just get right into the description <clears throat> some stay for a night some stay for a week some never leave in town for a job interview a young woman arrives at her airbnb late at night only to find that it has been mistakenly double booked and a strange man is already staying there against her better judgment she decides to stay the night anyway but soon discovers that there is much more to be afraid of in the house than the other guests um Something about me that is notorious that you guys might not know is that I am very terrible of putting the duvet cover back onto my bed, and this film allegedly has a way to do it, and I've watched the film, I've tried the technique, I still can't fucking do it. So I'm calling bullshit on that, Bill Skarsgård. Um, I cannot put on a duvet cover. Um, I love this film. I love how weird it is. There's very unique, like, camera angles. There's some shots in it that are absolutely hilarious, um, that are, like, centering around a gun, and it's moving around. I just think it's great. Um, again, I don't want to give too much away about this one. It is a new release. If you guys haven't seen it yet, I highly recommend checking out Barbarian. I gave it four stars. I loved the film. Um, like I said, really unique creature, really unique setup. Um, it does keep you guessing until you kind of know what's going on and then you see what's happening. But the beginning isn't like it leads you into something you don't think it's going to be. So it is a little bit of a surprise. Um, the Airbnb, it's a very nice house in like a really shitty like looking neighborhood. So it's kind of like out of place. So that's just creepy in and of itself. Um, I like the film quite a bit. Definitely check out Barbarian. The other film I watched that day I liked as well. Um, not as much, it's not on the same scale as something as Barbarian, but I did have a lot of enjoyment in the film, at least with a lot of, like, concepts in the film. Um, Jared brought this film up to me, and I watched it, we watched it separately. Um, but it's a film I guess we related to a little bit, it's about, like, a YouTuber, I guess, who's doing, like, some pranks and shit like that, so it's just, if there's a film about a content creator, I just think it's kind of amusing. This film is called Deadstream, again, coming out in 2022. He's dying for followers. A disgraced internet personality attempts to win back his followers by live streaming one night alone in a haunted house. But he accidentally pisses off the vengeful spirits and big and his big comeback event becomes a real-life fight for his life. Um, it's kind of like an Evil Dead film, I would say. Um, just trapped in the house and there's, like, essentially deadites coming after the guy. Um, it's the same scene that did the hell segment in VHS 99, 
So I already like the team behind it. Um, so I like that segment of VHS. I also like this film. Um, I do wish it could have been a little bit better. Um, but given what it is, I think it's very amusing. Um, the main character in this, though, is just brutal. The main character in this is so fucking obnoxious. Um, but I guess that's kind of, I mean, that's what they were going for. They were going for an obnoxious YouTuber, um, content creator kind of guy. So they, they got what they were attempting to do. But I guess just for my viewing preferences, I thought he was fucking annoying. I'm like, I would never watch this cat's live streams. I hope this isn't the way that I come off on my shows as annoying as this dude. Uh, but Deadstream, I liked it. I would watch it again. Very good, serviceable, found footage film. I guess it's not really found footage. It's like a live stream. You're watching it as it's happening. Um, but very unique film. Very fun. I do wish it could have been a little bit better. Um, but I really enjoyed it for what it was. Um, coming up next is the third film in the VHS franchise. And that, of, of course is VHS viral. So I watched four out of the five VHS films in a short period of time. This one is undoubtedly the worst. Um, Mayhem goes viral. VHS viral segments include the story of a deranged illusionist who obtains a magical object of great power, a homemade machine gun that opens a door in a parallel world, teenage skaters that unwillingly become targets of a Mexican death cult ritual, and a sinister shadowy organization that's tracking a serial killer. These segments are tied together by the story of a fame-obsessed teen following a violent car chase in L.A. that unwillingly, unwittingly becomes stars of the next internet sensation. This film is so fucking bad. Um, I'm going to go to Jared's letterboxed review of this film because I think it is absolutely hilarious. Um, just reading it in Jared's personality is very amusing to me, and I can just see him writing this. The wraparound is a mess. The magician's story is pathetic. The parallel universe story is good, and the state border story is awful but fun. Uh, it's the most Jared thing of all time. The, what is it? The magician's story is pathetic. Oh, my God. Um, out of all of them, I think the Magician one is by far the most memorable out of the um, films in this, but I can't say any of them are good. Um, but the Magician one, I think, is hilarious. I think that's the one to watch out of these, even though Jared hated it. Um, but I do think it is the most amusing out of the segments. Um, but again, undoubtedly the worst out of the VHS franchise by... I won't say a long shot, because the first one isn't that great either. Um, but I will say that I guess there is kind of like a wide margin because there's still some stuff in the first one that I don't think is as piss poor as it is in this one. Um, I think my one and a half star review of this might be a little generous. I don't know. It's hard to say. I do plan on rewatching all of the VHS films, kind of doing like a marathon of them at some point. Maybe doing a ranking of the segments. If you guys would want to see something like that, that'd be fun to do. Coming up next, we're getting towards the end of November. Took a few week gap before I watched anything. Um, and I actually watched Silent Light, Deadly Night, Part 2. Um, of course, the legendary Garbage Day film. Um, and Jared and I, if you remember at the time, we actually reached out to that actor to come under the podcast, Eric Freeman. Um, we haven't heard anything back yet. We should probably follow up with Eric Freeman and see if we can get an exclusive Garbage Day interview. Um, of course, from 1987, the nightmare is about to begin again. After being traumatized by his brother's Billy's murderous rampage years earlier, Ricky Caldwell has become a serial killer himself and is now living in a mental hospital. 
Relating his story to a psychiatrist, Ricky recounts the details of the murder sprees and vows to avenge his brother's death. The main detriment in this film is it's hardly a film. Like, I don't remember how much of it is stock footage, but I remember Jared looking it up when we talked about this a few years ago. But the majority of the film, it feels like, is stock footage from the original film. There's very little actual new content that is in this one. Um, so I don't think it really should have existed if they didn't have a fully fleshed out story. It's clearly like a cash grab um, just to get people in there. Like they shot so much, so little footage. It's essentially a short film and then half of the first movie again. So it's basically like you're just watching the first one over with a couple like meme worthy moments sprinkled in. Of course, the garbage day scene and stuff like that. But Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2 definitely cannot recommend. It's only one and a half star for me, the same level as VHS Viral. Not a horror film, but the last film I watched in November was actually Gone Girl, which if you guys haven't seen, you should definitely check out. Of course, from my favorite director, David Fincher, one of my favorite films of all time. Um, besides horror films, one of my favorite films of all time is Gone Girl and several other David Fincher classics. But coming in November, I only watched two horror films during the month of November, so we're coming towards the home stretch of this here, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. The original classic. Bubba, an intellectually disabled man, is falsely accused of attacking a young girl. Disguised as a scarecrow, he hides in a cornfield, only to be hunted down and shot by four vigilante men. After they acquired, after they are acquitted, my apologies, due to the lack of evidence, the men find themselves being stalked one by one. This is a classic 80s um, film. I thought uh, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, of course, my friends from Dark Knight of the Podcast named their show after Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Um, because it's one of their favorite films. I personally don't have it in like the upper echelon of my favorites, but I do think it's a perfectly fine, serviceable three-star 80s horror film. Definitely not an essential watch, but once you get into sort of those BC tier um, kind of horror films as you're going through your rounds, like after you've watched The Good Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, your Return of the Living Deads, um, stuff like that, your pumpkin heads, this is definitely in like... The next like steps down from that you know like some of your sequels and stuff like that dark knight of the scarecrow definitely a few stops short of classic but definitely still a film to check out the last horror film that i watched was actually another christmas horror film this one is don't open till christmas from 1984 i gave it two stars which seems to be the consensus of a lot of my letterbox followers as well is two stars for this one here "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring. They were all dead. Somebody with very little Christmas spirit is killing anyone in a Santa suit one night in the holiday season in London, and Scotland Yard has to stop him before he makes his exploits an annual tradition. Not the greatest Christmas horror movie of all time, but again, something that's serviceable. It's fine if you're looking for something different. I definitely recommend Black Christmas. Um... And there's some other, like, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 1 is better than this. Um, but don't open till Christmas if you're looking for something different. I gave it, like, two stars. I mean, it's fine if you just want something on in the background. Um, the last film that I watched of the year, not a horror film, but a Christmas story Christmas. Uh, the only reason I bring it up is because this one actually is a follow-up to the original film. Having the original actor who played Ralphie coming back uh, 40 years later, or however long later it was, 
to do this. I just love it because I think it's a fitting tribute to Darren McGavin, who played the dad in the original Christmas story. Um, a lot of the film is Ralphie trying to live up to the hype of his father, and like, there's lots of good pictures of like Shack on the wall and stuff like that. Not actually Shack, but the actor. Um, I think it was. I think it was charming. I think it was fun. It, I mean, it's not something I'm ever going to rewatch, but a fitting tribute to Darren McGavin and a fitting way to end my 2022 movie watching experience. Um, I watched a lot of good films that, that year. I watched a few stinkers and stuff like that. But overall, I really enjoyed just watching films. So even when I'm watching bad films, I enjoy, you know, kind of talking about it and stuff like that. Um, but with that, I'm going to sort of wrap up this show here. I don't know how long that I've been going on this, but it's got to be well over an hour. So I'm going to let you guys go and I will see you guys in the outro. Well, that's about it for this time, guys. I hope you enjoyed me doing the finale of my review of every horror film that I saw during the year of 2022. If you like this episode, make sure you are subscribing to my channel wherever you get your podcasts. Leave me a thumbs up. Shout me out over on Twitter, Instagram, wherever you guys are listening to the show. Help me spread the good word about the House of Horror. And I'll be back here tomorrow with another episode from the House of Horror, so make sure you stay tuned for that. So with that, you guys, take care and stay spooky.